Amen. Amen. Oh, what a marvelous time when we come into the presence of God and we worship him. Exodus chapter 17 tonight. The Lord gave me a word as we were worshiping. When we go through the challenges, the battles, the difficulties of life, we must remember that Jesus said, I am the way. And if we keep our eyes on him, he will always bring us through. It's when we get our eyes off of God that we struggle. That was the problem with the Israelites in the book of Exodus. After all God had done for them and continued to do for them, they did not trust that he was their way, that he would provide for them. After 430 years of bondage, is he going to deliver them and then bring them out to the desert to kill them? No. And we have to understand that in our life. He's not going to save us and then lead us to destruction. He's going to lead us to the path of blessing. And that always centers around leading us to him, to his person. And we see that in the book of Exodus as well. We are in a section right now. If you want to follow along tonight, we're in Exodus chapter 17. But we're in a section right now from Exodus 16 through Exodus 17, 7. It's all about the provision of God for his people. They kept murmuring, they kept complaining, they kept griping. Every time they would come up to some kind of obstacle or challenge, God, you're not taking care of us, they would murmur against Moses. We have no water, the water's bitter. So in chapter 16, we saw where God directed Moses to take his staff, to hit the water with it. It went from bitter to sweet, and they were able to quench their thirst. He moves them through the desert to another place, and they start complaining about being hungry. God sends supernatural manna down from heaven and provides quail for them. I mean, over and over again, God is showing, I can provide for you, even if it means doing something supernatural. And God did that for 40 years. We saw that last week. So now we come to chapter 17. And we sort of start out the same way. Notice, though, first of all, it is the whole company of Israel that is moving as one. They are moving together. It's the way God wants it. He wants us, first of all, to be part of a community of faith and then to move together in unison with him as we follow his leading. They kept moving, verse 1, on their journey from the desert of sin according to the Lord's instruction, literally from the mouth of God. Moses was hearing the word and instruction and leadership of God, and he was leading the people as God was directing him. They pitched their camp and Rephidim. It is a place in the desert, but it is a resting place. 
in the desert. It's what the word means. It is a reminder to us that even when God leads us into desert places and into seasons where we are in a desert season, that God still knows where to take us to rest. Because our rest isn't found in our circumstances. Our rest is found in him and in our relationship and fellowship with him. The problem again was they weren't focused on God. They were focused on what was around them or in this case, what wasn't around them. Somehow again, they thought that after God had provided for them supernaturally to turn the bitter water into sweet and fresh water, and after God provided them manna and quail, that somehow now here they are. Now this is finally the time that God has brought us out to kill us. Notice, there is no water for the people to drink. God knew that. He knew where he was leading them. And as we learned last week, he was doing this to show his people the deficiency in their faith, the deficiency in their trust in him, that they really didn't know him. Because if they knew him and they knew his heart for them, then they could trust him. God is doing the same thing in our lives today. Throughout our life, he tries to get us to know him so that we will learn to trust him more and not be anxious and not be worried and not be fearful, but to rest and to trust in the Lord. But they didn't. So verse 2 tells us the people contended or quarreled with Moses. And they demanded, notice, they demanded, give us water to drink. That's important. Because Moses says to them, why do you contend or quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? We see this phrase again, testing the Lord, down in verse 7. What does it mean to test the Lord? It means that when doubt leads us to demand something of God to prove himself to us. Now we know at times in our life we're going to struggle with doubt. But this goes beyond that. This is a doubt that is so intense and so severe that we are literally demanding of God that he show us something in order to prove his faithfulness. It's not necessary. First of all, God doesn't need to prove himself to human beings. Amen. And second of all, God has more than proven himself to these people. Amen. They have more than enough evidence, more than enough light. They've been given more than enough signs. They've experienced more than enough miracles and the expressions of God's power. Keep that in mind because that's going to tie into our message on Sunday. God doesn't need to prove himself. But the people were very thirsty there 
for water. And they grumbled and complained and murmured against Moses and said, why in the world did you bring us out of Egypt again? Same old line, right? Basically so that we die out here. That rut was deep, wasn't it? That groove that they had cut into their, to their minds and into their hearts was deep because they kept coming back and defaulting to that. Every time they ran into some kind of trouble, that's where they went. God just brought us out here to kill us. As we talked about last week, they, they never came to a place where they really saw with their eyes of faith the goodness and the greatness of God. Even after all that he had done. So again, keep this in mind for Sunday. That is a great reminder to us that expressions of God's power and miracles and signs and all these experiences don't necessarily create or strengthen faith in a person. You can have all the signs and miracles and all of that that you want to. That does not necessarily equate to faith. So that's why God is not, first of all, going around at every turn. That's why Jesus, when he was here, didn't heal everybody. He just healed certain people at certain times for the purposes of God. That's why he didn't do miracles all the time, because there was a purpose behind it. And it was never to bring about faith. As I shared Sunday, it was an audio-visual testimony of the rule, sovereignty, and power of God that he was on the scene in Satan's domain, and he was beginning to dismantle and destroy the kingdom of Satan. That's why he said, I will build my church at the very gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail because I'm stronger, I'm greater. Oh, that we would capture that vision of the Lord. Then Moses, verse 4, did what he always did, which was good. He took it to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. He prayed, what will I do with this people? A little more and they're going to stone me. This is a reminder to us that even as spiritual leaders, it's not easy. Amen. Being a Christian is not for the faint of heart and being spiritual leaders is not for the faint of heart. You're dealing with people. And people are fickle, and people are this, and people are that, and it's hard to get everybody together and get them moving in the same direction and, and, and not, you know, bringing their own agenda and, and, and bringing self in, into it. it. It's so challenging, and yet we need spiritual leaders. So the Lord spoke to Moses, and oh, I'm sure Moses was so glad over his lifetime that he was hearing the voice of God when he was hearing all these other voices that were murmuring and complaining and griping that he could also dial in to the voice of God and hear from the Lord because he needed that. 
as assurance and affirmation that he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. And the Lord said to Moses, go over before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Notice God always directed Moses once that staff became the staff of God out in the desert when God called him that he always wanted that staff to be with Moses because it represented, and we're going to get to this even later, it represented the presence and power of God amongst his people. It was a visual, if you will. I will be standing, don't miss that. I will be standing before you, verse 6, there on the rock in Oreb. In a sense, I will become the rock. And you will strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Now, before we saw that he simply touched the water that was bitter and it became sweet, good to drink. Here God instructs Moses to strike the rock that in a sense he, God, becomes. And by the way, this isn't just a tap. In the Hebrew, it is a word that describes inflicting a fatal blow. Moses gave that rock a whack as hard as he could. And then water came out. Why was that significant? Why did God instruct him to do that? Keep your finger in Exodus chapter 17 and go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. We get a little bit of insight into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start in verse 1, just to pick it up at the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Don't miss this, for they were all drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock that Moses gave a whack to and struck with everything he had, inflicting a fatal blow that then poured out life-giving water to his people was none other than Christ himself. It is a beautiful picture of what one day was going to happen on the cross whenever he was struck and he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And all that Christ went through, he poured out his life-giving blood so that through his sacrifice and his righteous blood, you and I can be saved. And you and I can drink water from Christ and never be thirsty again. This rock followed them through the desert. It represented Jesus Christ. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to share it now so that you have some kind of context. Later on, if you know the story of Moses, you know that there came a point where they had no water again, and God told Moses to speak to the rock. 
And Moses disobeyed and he struck it, just like he did here. He disobeyed. And it was because of that that God did not permit Moses to go into the promised land. Why was that so important? Why was that so significant? Because Christ is only struck once. Christ only had to die once. Christ only had to offer himself as a sacrifice and go through infl having inflicted a fatal blow once. So when Moses struck that rock again, he, in a sense, was striking Christ a second time instead of just speaking to the rock. Back to Exodus chapter 17. The people drank from the rock that literally was Christ. And Moses did so at the end of verse 6 in plain view of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means complaining, because of the contending of the Israelites and because of their testing the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Of course he was among them. He has been with them every step of the way. They doubted his presence and his provision. May we grow so that we don't doubt God's presence and provision in our life. And if we struggle with that, may we continue to grow and walk with him and come to know him so that we struggle less with knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's presence and provision will always be there for his people. Always. Is the Lord among us or not? How did you get out of Egypt after 430 years? Do you think you did that on your own? Do you think you crossed the Red Sea on dry ground on your own? That was you that did that? Do you think you're the one that made the bitter water clear and clean? Do you, do you think you're the one that brought this manna down from heaven and, and brought you quail to eat? Is the Lord among us or not? So here we have sort of the end of that section, starting in chapter 16, verse 1, all the way through chapter 17, verse 7. And it's all about these three times where Israel complained and murmured and griped, not trusting in and believing that God would provide for them. I want to encourage you tonight. I, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't even know whether maybe even the prospects of future, because let's face it, if you watch the news and you watch, you know, all that's going on in the world and stuff, you can begin to get a little fearful if you looked at things from a worldly perspective. Where's our economy going? And, and we keep piling up dead and, and the whole world is, is a mess. And, 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 and you and I could begin, if we did not keep our eyes on the Lord, to begin to get fearful and worried and, and anxious about, well, are we going to be okay? And how are we going to meet our needs? And how are we going to afford things if, you know, prices continue to rise? All I can tell you is I don't know how, but I know this. God is faithful. Amen. Amen. And we have never seen 
a child of God, according to the word of God, go begging. God will always provide, even if he has to supernaturally. God will provide for our needs. He will provide for the needs of our church. Because he's faithful. That's what is reinforced and affirmed in Exodus 16, 1 through chapter 17, verse 7. But then we come to this next section, verses 8 through 16, and it's about a battle. Because guess what? As we follow the Lord, there's going to be battles. There just is. And we obviously sung about those in our time of worship tonight. We're going to have at times battles and wars and fights that we have to go through. Here it is identified the enemy as Amalek. Amalek comes and attacks Israel in Rephidim. Israel didn't go looking for a fight. The enemy came to them. And this was a nasty enemy. In fact, take your finger there and keep it in Exodus 17. Go over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, we have sort of an amplification of what was going on here. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on your way from Egypt? How they met you along the way and cut off all your stragglers in the rear of the march when you were exhausted and tired and they were unafraid of God? They didn't fight fair. They didn't play fair. This really wasn't a battle or a war. They were waiting to see who couldn't keep up. And they were picking them off from behind. So when the Lord your God gives you relief from all the enemies who surround you in the land he is giving you as an inheritance, you must wipe out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Do not forget, God says. Back to Exodus 17. That's a little bit of added information here about who these people were. So Moses says to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight against Amalek. Couple things. One, Moses clearly knew Joshua was ready for this. He didn't ask Joshua, Joshua, you think this is a good idea? Are you willing to? No, go. You do this. And Joshua, I believe, by being willing to step up at this point, was being prepared for what God had for him later on. That's why you and I, when we are given opportunities, we need to step into them because they're not just about the here and now. They're about God preparing us for what's down the road. And this was the first battle. And Joshua was going to learn to be a great leader not only spiritually, but a great leader militarily for his people. Now think about it, though. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but this is crazy, right? These people had been slaves. They, they have no military training at all. They've been slaves for 430 years. And they're not in a good place. They, they are murmurers and complainers and gripers and all of that. Oh, and by the way, so we have no military experience, very little weapons at our disposal, and we're supposed to fight this trained army of Amalekites, and how are we going to do that? Well, there's an old guy up there on the hill holding a piece of wood. Does that sound like that would have given you warm fuzzies? I don't think so. 
Because as we learn tonight, even through our time of worship, the battle's the Lord's. Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Symbolic, again, of the presence and power of God. Oh, by the way, I forgot this. When he tells Joshua to go out and fight, the words go and the word fight in the Hebrew are not suggestions. They are imperatives. They are commands. Go fight. We need people who are willing to fight. This reminds us of human responsibility. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. But in our battles and in our fights, there is both the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. God will show up and do his part, but he wants us to do what we can do. And Joshua was to assemble a fighting force. Notice, choose. It means a careful, well-thought-out choice. Don't just choose anybody. Joshua, you have the responsibility to look around and choose who you think you want to go to battle with. That's important. In your life, spiritually speaking, who would you choose to be by your side in spiritual battles? Who would you choose? to be there by your side, to be that fellow soldier on the battlefield? Who is it that you believe in, have confidence in, trust in, to be your companion and, and your partner? That's what we're seeing here. So Joshua fought against Amalek just as Moses had instructed him, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill Whenever Moses would raise his hands, then Israel prevailed. But whenever he would rest his hands, then Amalek prevailed. When the hands of Moses became heavy, and that's important because that is a reminder that it wasn't going to be by Moses' power, by our power, it was going to be by God's power. That they would take a stone, put it under him, and Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. This is a reminder to us as human beings that God's going to show up, the battle's going to be the Lord's, God is sovereign, but victory is never won alone. Do you hear me? Victory is never won alone. Moses needed his Joshua. Moses needed Aaron and her up there on the hill with him. And you and I are the same. God does not expect us to fight our battles by ourselves. We always will have him, but he places strategic people in our life to make sure that when we go into battle, when we go through life, when we do ministry, that we've got people that we know we can rely and depend upon and trust in. We need each other if we're going to accomplish all that God has for us as his people. So they steadied his hands until the sun went down. And because of that, Joshua destroyed Amalek and his army with the sword. Many people have taken this passage to, to speak about prayer 
I don't think it has anything to do with prayer. Moses could have prayed with his hands down as much as he could with his hands up. I don't think it has anything to do with prayer. I think it simply is a visual to show that when his hands were up with the staff representing God and God's power and God's presence, they were winning in victory. When God's presence was not there, symbolized by his hands being down, then the Amalek prevailed. But by the way, Here's an important principle before we wrap this up tonight. Notice something. The battle was not won down in the valley where Joshua and the soldiers were. The battle was won where? On the hill. Don't ever forget that. Our battles, many times, we focus on the battlefield itself. We focus on, you know, the, the, the battle itself, the war, the fight, whatever. No, no. The battle is won usually somewhere else. Maybe in our preparation. Maybe in us putting on the full armor of God, as Ephesians 6 tells us. Maybe in having other people praying for us. That's certainly interceding. But the battle very rarely is won actually on the battlefield. It's won in this invisible spiritual world. And Joshua was being supported by the people on the hill that we're holding up a visual symbol of the presence and power of God. And the Lord then, after they defeated the Am Amalekites, said in verse 14, write this as a remembrance. Don't ever forget this and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing. Why was that important? Because when Joshua would take over as the leader of his people, and even when Joshua would lead the people of God into further battles, Joshua needed to know it's not going to be through military strategy that these battles are won. It's going to be through us putting God in his proper place. It's going to be through us worshiping the Lord. Later on in the book of Joshua... Joshua's there and he's contemplating, how are we going to defeat Jericho? And he meets this pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army. And what does the commander of the Lord's army, the Lord Jesus, tell Joshua? Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. He doesn't tell Joshua and give him all this military strategy. He says, worship me and you'll win the paddle. That's what he was telling Joshua. You get your worship right, you put me in your proper place, and you'll have no trouble winning your battles. God says, I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And he did, but not immediately. Notice in verse 16 that the hand of the Lord had war with Amalek from generation to generation. It was an ongoing conflict because that's what life is. Life isn't one and done. We have multiple battles through our life. And by the way, the last mention of any ancestor of Amalek in the Bible, I'm not saying he was the absolute last person alive, but at least the last ancestor of the Amalekites that we know that's mentioned in the Bible is a man by the name of Haman in the book of Esther. One more thing before I let you go. What did Moses do after the victory? He built a place of worship. That's what an altar is. 
It is a place to worship the Lord. And he called that place of worship Jehovah Nisi. The only time this designation of God is mentioned in the Bible. The Lord is my banner. He is my rallying point. He's the one that I go to and that I put myself under. And as the people of God, we gather together for a common purpose to fight a common enemy. And God still should be our banner today. He should be the one that we run to, that we rally around, and that we come together for a common purpose as God's people. Just hang in there with me a couple more minutes. This really resonated with me because a banner is like a battle flag. And any of you that know me know my interest in the Civil War. Listen, battle flags in the Civil War were huge. It was an honor to be the flag bearer in any regiment, even though you were carrying a flag and not a weapon. It was an honor. In fact, if a flag went down, people were fighting over being the one to pick it back up and carry it into battle. Why was it so significant? Because it was the rallying point for that regiment, that group of people that all came from the same town. And by the way, most of those flags, they had been made by the women of that town. The women of that town sewed those flags together. It was like when those men fought under that flag, they were remembering not only the women and children back in their hometown, but they were rallying around that as, as the people from that region. And they went into battle together. And that flag was always to be kept up. And when that flag, you know, dropped, they, they were getting there as fast as they could and raising that flag back up. Because in the fog of battle, when the smoke from the cannons and everything where were they supposed to go? Where were they supposed to find their people? Where were they supposed to, you know, rally themselves? Where the flag was, they had to look for the flag. And I love that because that's exactly what Moses is saying here. Our flag, our banner, our rallying point is always God himself. We are to find him and we are to run to him and we are to start there. And we are to come together as God's people for a com common purpose under our banner, Jehovah Nisi. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight for the assurance of victory in you, that you are our victory. God, as long as we worship you and we keep you in your rightful place, that we look to you instead of ourselves, that we fight not in our own strength but in yours, Lord, we'll win the battles that we have to fight in this life. And Lord, may we always grow in our trust of you. You will always provide for us. You will always be faithful to your promises. We can always look to you. We don't know how we're going to be provided for at all times throughout our life. We don't know how you're going to do it, God, but it opens up if we trust you for you to be glorified and for us to even see miracles and supernatural things take place when we look to you and trust you for provision. Lord, may we not lean into our own understanding, but trust you with all our heart. And we ask all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.